Welcome, my name is Kareem Kanji and this is episode 61. Today I welcome Deputy Leader of the Ontario New Democratic Party and MPP from Malton, maybe future leader of the federal NDP party, Jagmeet Singh. Enjoy this conversation. Live from Pacific Junction Hotel, Girth Radio in session. Thank you so much for coming in, Jagmeet. My pleasure, brother. Really appreciate it. So I have to ask you. Yes, go ahead. First off. Yeah. And you're, you're going to predict what I'm going to ask you. Am I going to do it? No. No. <laughs> no, that's the second question okay, I'm going to ask sorry, you. Sorry. Your first question. Yeah. Your thoughts. Okay. Because it's dominating oh, the, right. the, the world. Yes. Uh, your thoughts. Is this the year the Leafs win? This oh shoot! No, I, thought you're, I thought you were going to ask me about Trump or something. Yeah, fair. Okay, I'll ask you that question. Okay, no, I mean your thoughts. Your your thoughts on your thoughts on President Trump. Sure. Yeah. Thoughts are the man is extremely confusing. He has totally turned on its head our notions of the dignity and the gravitas of the position of the responsibility of being in office. Yeah. And he has made it something completely different from what we'd all expected and had seen before. Mm-hmm. What's troubling about him is his divisive politics, that he's using politics to divide people and pit people against each other. Mm-hmm. That's not what we need to see more of. In fact, we need to see none of that because it just makes us weaker as a society. Yeah. But the confusing thing about him is, while I disagree with so many of the things he's doing and the things that he's signaled that he's going to do, one of the recent things that he's announced is that he wants to get you at the u.s out of the tpp yeah and without getting into the details that it's a trade agreement that a lot of canadians were worried that would actually impact negatively canadian manufacturing mm-hmm. and by an unintended consequence actually impact our drug costs because we have a lot of non-branded drug companies mm-hmm. off-brand or non-brand mm-hmm. and we actually have much more affordable drugs than many other countries in the world mm-hmm. and the agreement would have put some of that into jeopardy anyways so that's the one thing that he's mentioned that i'm kind of cool with okay but the rest okay. of what he does is just really out there and in a lot of ways kind of scary one one of the th- the things that he's doing recently is uh, I, I think today he had all of the um all of the car manufacturers at the white house right. and, and in ontario here um, you know, we've got a big car manufacturing, auto manufacturing. We do. Um, we do. You know, uh, thousands of people employed. For sure. Um, your your thoughts is is this is this things that we need to be really worried about? Well, in your opinion? one of the things is that he's really big on protectionism for the U.S., meaning yeah. that he really wants everything to be made in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And I can see how that's quite appealing to Americans because it's going to, in some ways, potentially bolster the manufacturing sector. But on the flip side, as our major trading partner for Canadians, mm-hmm. it's a concern because if he's pushing for only made in America mm-hmm. and we have a lot of things that we still manufacture here in, in Canada, that mm-hmm. could signal a problem for us. So with the auto manufacturing, since in Ontario, that's one of the major manufacturing industries that we have, we're concerned a bit about what that means for made in, in Canada mm-hmm. automotive parts and, and products. There is a, a bit of a saving grace that if there's a made-in-U.S. agreement, you can have a certain percentage of the vehicle made outside of the States and then a, you know, a certain component or percentage assembled in the States for it to satisfy yeah. made-in-the-U.S. So that might 
allow us to save jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for some of the vehicles that are assembled primarily in, in Canada, I'm mm-hmm. worried about what that means for the future of some of the jobs. So uh, it's something that we're going to watch very carefully. Yeah. We want to protect our jobs here in Ontario. So it is concerning. What, what kind of relationship do we need um, you know, here in Ontario? Um, you know, what kind of relationship should we strive to develop? You could, we, have, we have no choice who the president is, right? He's the president. He's going to be there for four years plus. Um, you know, what do what what do Ontarians need to do, or what, what, I guess what does what do the leaders here need to do to ensure that? In my opinion, I think we need to have like a a, a very a relationship that is amicable uh, with him. Um, what, what's your opinions on that? Well, absolutely. I mean, we have. The U.S. is our major trading partner, mm-hmm. so there's really no way around it. Yeah, we absolutely need to have a relationship. At the same time, we can't allow ourselves to get pushed around by or bullied by mm-hmm. some of what seems to be Trump's tactics, which are kind of bullying tactics. Yeah, so we can't get pushed around or bullied. Yeah, but we definitely need to maintain a, uh, like you said, a, an amicable relationship. Yeah, it has to be civil. We have to be able to have open lines of communication, but yeah, definitely not get pushed around. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Second question. Sure. Are you going to run for the leadership of the federal NDP party? All right, Kareem listeners, everybody, I'm going to make the final announcement right now, right here. I'm considering it. You're considering <laughs> it. I am going to take that, the alternative fact, because now that there's such a thing, is is that you are running. Um, <laughs> so you heard it here first. Kareem is breaking the story. Um, wh- okay, well, let me ask you, why are you considering it? So... There was a bit of a journey for me. Yeah. It started off when Tom Mulcair didn't receive enough support to continue on as leader yeah. during the leadership review. Mm-hmm. Somewhat, pretty quickly afterwards, within about a week or two weeks, mm-hmm. there was a number of stories about who could, who the next leader would be, and there was mm-hmm. some speculation about it. And my name made it into the speculation, and I was, to be honest with you, quite surprised. I'm a provincial member, Yeah. so really there was no there's no connection directly that I would be a candidate in the federal race. Mm-hmm. And and I was surprised by it. It was something that I didn't see coming. And then I thought, you know, it's a compliment. I was humbled. I was honored that people consider me a, a potential candidate. And I, I left it at that. Yeah. But I noticed the story didn't go away. In fact, the story grew. <laughs> and more and more stories came out that speculated I could be the a contender and then some people started speculating that I might be one of the front runners and that really got me confused I thought you know speculating that I'm going to run is one thing but to speculate me as a front runner when I'm a provincial member and I've never really indicated a desire to to be the leader of a party I I did indicate that I was interested in federal politics I ran initially as an MP so anyways yeah I I saw the story start to grow on its own and get bigger and bigger and then people started asking me, and then one turning point happened. There was a reporter who asked me the question, well, what would it take for you to consider it? Because mm-hmm. I said at that point, I'm not even considering it. It's yeah, not really yeah. an option for me. Yeah. I'm honored. I haven't made a decision, but I'm definitely, it's not really something that's, in my ra- that's yeah. on my radar or something that's a, a legitimate, real choice for me to make. I just didn't really think much of it. She asked me, well, what would it take? And I said, I don't know. And really, it's not really a question for me. And <laughs> she kept on pushing me, and she said, well, what if there was a massive ground groundswell or a grassroots movement to recruit you yeah and i said i don't know and she kept on pushing and then finally i said yeah fine if there was a groundswell if there was a grassroots movement you know i might consider it yeah well 
Kareem, I guess that's exactly what happened. <laughs> and there was a bit of a groundswell. There was yeah. a grassroots movement. And then I started hearing people out. And, and then I got to the point where I'm like, listen, maybe I should consider this. There's a lot of people that want me to do it. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's something to consider. So yeah. I started considering it. Nice. Excellent. Um, I want to start in Scarborough. Sure. Because that's, that's, that's home for me. Okay, cool. Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm upset a little bit that you've left home. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Well, I was born there. That's, I that's, know, yeah. That's where I was born. Um, where did you grow up in Scarborough? Well, this is a funny thing. I don't really remember because okay, I, so I was a baby. <laughs> I was born at Scarborough General Hospital. I know that much. Okay. And then I was about a year old. Yeah. My parents lived in an apartment okay. building. My dad was a security guard. Okay. And my mom was uh, worked at a bank. Yeah. And my dad was studying for his medical equivalency exams to become a doctor. Okay. And was struggling with those exams and studying and something sometimes had to leave the city to go to exam preps out of city in different different places. And so my mom was having a hard time taking care of me by herself. So I was actually shipped off to Punjab. Okay. So after about a year, I I was sent to live with my grandparents in Punjab. Okay. And so I grew up there for about a year. Oh, okay. And my first language was actually Punjabi. Okay. And when I came back, yeah. I didn't come back to Scarborough. My dad got into medical school. Oh, nice. He passed his exams and was yeah. accepted for a specialty program to specialize in, in Memorial University in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland. So that's where I actually learned English, where I learned how to ride a bike, where I grew up. So about five years, five, almost six years, I lived in, in Newfoundland. Or five years. Five, five years. years in Newfoundland. Five how, years in Newfoundland. How, there's, there's not many Sikhs. There are definitely not very many Sikhs. In Newfoundland. No, you're absolutely right. Yeah. How was it growing up there? It was, you know, when I was young, I feel... I was a cute young kid, so I think I was insulated a bit from racism. Sure. I know it's not necessarily the most diverse place, and maybe mm-hmm. I would have experienced some problems maybe when I was older. Yeah. I know that some of the folks I chatted with, I actually returned there. My brother and I went back to Newfoundland okay. after about 30 years yeah. just this past summer. Oh, wow. And we had a phenomenal time. People were amazing. We had yeah. a great time. But we spoke to some people that grew up there, and they talked about some of the racism they fa- faced. Yeah. But there's a bit of East Coast hospitality, I think, that counters some of the hmm. racism because there's a culture of being welcoming and hospitable. So yeah. anyways, uh, I I remember like having fun as a kid. Like, nice. I remember playing outside a lot, even if it was cold. Yeah. There's a lot of snow and we yeah. played in the snow. It was no big deal. We lived across from our park and we, we hunted down this park. Yeah. And it's called Bowering Park. And it's actually one of the most beautiful parks in St. John's. And I would argue one of one of the coolest parks in Canada because it's a, it's an urban park in the city. Yeah. But it feels like you're in a national park because there's there's rivers, there's creeks, there's bridges crossing over these rivers. It's there's like lush forest. It's quite extravagant for nice. a for an urban park. So, anyways, I played there. I remember we had a lot of memories playing there. Mm-hmm. And overall, I just had a good memory, a good time. Good. What you know, your dad's a doctor. Yep. Um, your mom, you said, was in a bank. She worked in a bank yeah. here in Canada, and then once my dad became a doctor established, she mm-hmm. took care of us. She retired. <laughs> yeah, she retired. She was a teacher, trained as a teacher in okay. Punjab, and, and t- taught in Punjab before she came to Canada. Yeah. Actually, I was going to ask you the decision to, because I know you studied law. Yep. Uh, but before that, I want to sure. ask you this question. Um, you know, Toronto is an amazing place. It's, it's almost like every, any country in the world or any types of peoples in the world, you could find somebody like that. In Toronto, sure you can, yeah. Um, and and so I'll, I'll, I'll probably give one s- of the most diverse cities in the world. I think so. Yeah, it's up there. One of the reasons, Jagmeet, that I do this podcast, sure, is really to learn. Um, 
learn about different people, learn about how people think and all these sorts of things. I'm really curious because I don't know. What is Sikhism? And I don't even know if I'm pronouncing yeah, that sure. right. Sure, um, I can, I'll help you with it. Yeah, but what is, what is Sikhism? Like, sure. Yeah. So people say Sikh, so you're okay. not, I mean, you're not mis... That's what people say. It's actually pronounced Sikh. Okay, Sikh. Like, like... Similar to the word, I'm not feeling well. Okay. Or as I like to, yo, that car is sick. <laughs> so it's pronounced sick. Okay. And we we actually don't use the word sickism. Okay. We would use the word sicky. Sicky. Okay. And that's like the philosophy of being a sick. Okay. And what is it? It's, I can summarize it in a couple of quick sure, ideas. Sure. 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 One is, we have a spiritual. It's a spiritual tradition, spiritual belief. It's a way of life. Mm-hmm. And one of our our guiding principles is is. It starts off our, our scriptures or our writings or our spiritual philosophy is Ik on God, which literally translates to there's one universal energy. Okay. And we believe that there's literally, there is the oneness, uh, an energy that's inside you, inside me, all mm-hmm. around us, kind of like the force in Star Wars. We, we okay. actually believe that there's a unifying energy or force or vibe. Yeah. And that's what we meditate on. Because we believe that there's this one energy that connects all of us, mm-hmm. we don't think that there's a separation between that energy that created all of this, like the creator mm-hmm. and the creation, we think it's all one. Okay. So because of that, we're actually, we have a strong moral belief in the equality of all people. We mm. believe in full gender equality. So in our places of prayer, mm-hmm. anything that's done in terms of uh, leading a service, leading a meditation, reading from the, the scriptures, uh, singing poetry, it can all be done by either a man or a woman. There's no distinction. So it's quite unique that way. It's one of the only major religions in the world where there's mm-hmm. full full equality that way mm-hmm. we also have a part of our tradition which is we believe that you should seek enlightenment or seek a spiritual goal mm-hmm. but at the same time you have a fundamental responsibility to not leave society not to you know go into the mountains and be an ascetic sure. but to actually be in society and work towards social justice so we actually have a very strong principle in making sure that uh, the elite who have power that that power is taken from the elite and given to the everyday people. Mm-hmm. So we have a strong social justice roots. And so that's kind of in a nutshell what we're about. That's really interesting. And yeah. it, I'm guessing yeah, um, or assuming that that's, it seems that that has guided you. Yeah, yeah. It really has actually. Yeah. It's been my – so there's been a couple of things that motivated me to care about the world. And one of the things is I feel because I faced a lot of racism growing up in Windsor, I'm more sensitive or I was and I continue to be more sensitive to injustice mm-hmm. or unfairness. And so it got me thinking about you know, what are the things that make life unfair for people and how can we make it more fair? So that sensitivity was was developed because of the fact that I faced a lot of in- unfairness. And then my spirituality really, it, it teaches that, you know, if you see someone struggling and someone in poverty, that could have been you. You and that person are one and the same. Yeah. And so I feel a moral responsibility to make sure we implement policies that, that ensure that someone's not living in poverty or someone doesn't have to live on the streets. So that definitely has motivated me to care about people, nice. to care about the world. So I, I'm curious about the thought process. I appreciate that you asked me, by the way. That's really no cool worries, of you. No Thank worries. Thank you. Um, I'm curious about your thought process on wanting to become a lawyer. Sure. Was Was that something you saw as... You know, here's the best way for me to continue, um, you know, just following my path um, or, or, you know, I'm, cu- I'm curious, you know, why, why that? Why not a doctor? Or, yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. Well, especially I mean, because your dad was a doctor. 100%. So yeah. I was actually most of my life planning to be a doctor. Okay. That was, uh, that was the path. 
my dad being a doctor, I kind of saw it. I yeah, saw yeah. the lifestyle. I knew what it was about. Yeah. I felt really comfortable going in that direction. I studied sciences. I was good at math and science. Okay. So that was, that was what I actually most of my life had anticipated I would do. At one point, my dad became quite ill. And it was around university. He was uh, so ill that he, he couldn't work anymore. While you are in university? When I was in university. Okay. And I got the impression, I started getting the feeling, the pressure as the oldest sibling we have a tradition in my family that the oldest sibling, you know, would care for the rest of the sure, siblings. Sure, yeah. And I had the feeling that my, if my dad's not doing well and I didn't want him to return to work because I didn't think he could, but I, maybe it would put too much stress on him. So I started to feel the pressure that I needed to get in a position to earn quickly. And I looked at medicine and I was having some concerns about, you know, the over-medicalization of medicine, that it was all about just taking pills. So I was having some you know, moral dilemmas about whether or not it was the right way to heal people. Mm -hmm. I really care about health and, and healing, but I was questioning medicine a bit. But more importantly then, my father fell ill, and I thought, listen, I need to get into a position where I can earn quickly, mm -hmm. be a professional, but do it quickly. And I thought medicine would be too long of a route. It would take, you know, many years of medical school and many years of specialty, whatever, whether it was simply for family medicine or for something more. And I just saw it as too long of a path, you know, 10 years to get to the point where I could start earning. So I started looking for alternatives. I started computer science. Okay. I did uh, two, a year and a half, let's say, of yeah. my computer science degree. I did basic first year programming language. I did some logic courses, some mathematic courses, some algorithm courses. So I was moving in that direction thinking that, yeah. you know, that's the future. Everyone's got to learn how to code. Sure, sure. And then I just didn't see myself as a coder. I, okay. I enjoy meeting people and, yeah. and being in social settings. So I thought maybe that's not for me. One of my electives was philosophy of law. And okay. the philosophy of law course, the professor said to me, you know, reviewing one of my papers, I did quite well in the course. He said, have you ever considered becoming a lawyer? And I said, no, never. It's never been something mm. I ever considered as a profession. He's like, yeah. well, you might be, you might be well suited to it. So anyways, his suggestion got me thinking, maybe I'll do it. I looked into it and I thought in law, three years of law school, by the fourth year when you're articling, you can start earning money. I saw it as a path to being a, becoming a professional, to be able to earn a decent living and there is a social justice element. Lawyers, you know, are able to sure. raise issues. So I thought it kind of fit in. So I went towards law. Nice. And so what sort of law did you do? Like, you know, there's different sure family there law and stuff like that. Right, what, did, yeah. what did you specialize in? So I didn't know what area I wanted to specialize in. In okay. law school, I kind of took a wide variety of courses, kind of a generalist. And then when I graduated, I still didn't know what I wanted to do specifically. And I started going to court. And sitting in court in, in the really? courthouse, okay. yeah, the local courthouse, just sitting in the courts are public, so you're, anyone's yeah. allowed to. I encourage people if you want to spend some time, waste some time, or kill some time, you can definitely go to the courthouse and watch cases. So I started going and watching cases, and I saw a lawyer. Actually, I met him afterwards and told him the story. I watched him cross-examine a police officer who had stopped a young black uh, person and had essentially given him a hard time and eventually arrested him with very little evidence. Mm -hmm. And he basically questioned him and said, well, why did you arrest him? There wasn't really any grounds for the arrest mm -hmm. and went through. And I remember growing up in Windsor that I was often, I felt mistreated by or harassed by the police. And I saw that this is an area where you can help out people that are often underrepresented or people who are not in a position of power and kind of balance or equalize the, the power dynamic between the, the police who have a lot of power and then racialized youth who often don't have a lot of power. And and so I, I saw what he was doing and I thought it might be something that would interest me. Mm -hmm. It seemed interesting and, I'm, and then I decided to call 
any or I, I went through a list of all the criminal law specialists on the Law Society website. Okay. So I went through the list, called everyone, kind of cold called them, said, hey, I'm interested in criminal law. I'd like to meet up with you. And I got two calls back. Yeah. And one of them was very enthusiastic. He said, yeah, for sure. I'd oh, love wow. to show you okay. around. And I met up with him. His name is Tom Carey, and now he's a Superior Court judge. And I basically ended up articling with him. So I got a, I got a position with him, nice. and I really enjoyed it. And then through working with him, I was kind of – I was noticed. I got in the eye of a major law firm that I wanted to work at, and I worked at one of the top criminal defense law firms in the city for about a year. Oh, wow. Yeah. You must have learned a lot working there. I did. I did. Yeah. What is yeah. What, what, one of the things that you learned? Like did you learn from you know, being at a big place where you got a lot of business or – did, did, were you able to learn from some of the partners there? That's actually a great question because yeah. there's two ways to learn. You're absolutely right. Sometimes you have that one-on-one -on -one experience and sometimes the sheer volume teaches you. Yeah. So I would say in this particular law firm, it was a combination, but more so the volume. We had a lot of cases coming in, mm -hmm. so there was a lot of independent learning. We had great resources. Some of the top lawyers in the city worked at the law firm. Yeah. So it was a combination, but compared to a lot of my colleagues, in a short period of time, within a year... I had done more bail hearings than I can count, probably in close to 100. And I did a number of trials, probably in the territory of 30 trials. Oh, my goodness. Which is a big deal in a short period of time. And the number of days that I was actually in court, some of the trials were multi-day trials. So I spent a lot of time in court, and I had built up a really good level of experience in a short period of time so i felt confident enough to go out on my own so mm -hmm. then i started my own practice nice yeah and you, that was you moved to brampton so yeah i was in law school i had moved to mississauga yeah and then i practiced downtown toronto but the firm was a gta firm so i kind of went everywhere you were all over the place yeah and then when i started my own practice i had clients from that firm that stayed with me they were kind of all over the city so i had a i had a gta practice but at some point, it started being that I had a bit more in Brampton versus anywhere else. Nice. But I was still pretty much a GTA lawyer. You've you've lived in a lot of places. I have, actually. Yeah. Scarborough, yeah. Yep. India, uh, Newfoundland. Yep. Windsor. True. Um, I was I in London when I went to Western Ontario for university. So I was there for about five years. I have years. here California. No. California, I... I went out there to surf a lot, <laughs> but no, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't live there. And, and now Peel Region. Yes. Where, where, what do you consider home or where do you consider home? Well, home is now Peel Region. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm based out of Mississauga and Brampton, and yeah. that's where I represent my constituencies there. That's right. That's and right. And that's where I've been for the past 10 years. Mm -hmm. My hometown is still going to be Windsor. I grew up in Windsor. That's yeah. where I learned how to fight, and that's where I became a tough <laughs> kid. So Windsor's still going to have a special place. Newfoundland's always going to have a special place, too. It's kind of like my childhood. Yeah. And Punjabi is my first language. I, even though I forgot all of it later on in life, and I've mm -hmm. relearned it now, um, Punjabi and Punjab will always have a special place in my heart. So there's three places I can consider, four places I consider home. Now, you talk about learning how to fight in Windsor. Uh, was that street fighting? Yeah, both. Because you're also, are you a black belt? Did I read that right? So I, I'm a martial artist. Yeah, martial, I've been, yeah. I would say in Taekwondo, I went up until red belt, okay. which is like a one belt away from black belt. Yeah. And, in, and, and I really enjoyed it. I was quite good at Taekwondo. Mm -hmm. uh, I wrestled and I was a captain of my wrestling team okay. in the States. And, and in the States, wrestling is big. Mm -hmm. And I went on Wait, to- in the States. When did you go to the States? I went to high school randomly. I actually went to, high, I went to the States for my school from grade six to grade 12. 
Okay, so, whereabouts? Uh, just outside of Detroit in okay. a suburb called Birmingham. Uh, the specific one is called Beverly Hills, Michigan. Okay. But uh, Bloomfield Hills, I guess, is a major – Birmingham, Bloomfield Hills is a major oh, suburb. Oh, okay, okay. So, yeah, I was there and – very random. Super <laughs> random, super <laughs> random. But wrestling was big there, so I was I was a big wrestler. Okay. Uh, I did martial arts, and then I went into jiu-jitsu, which is what, if you are a fan of UFC, mm-hmm. the groundwork that they do when yeah. they're doing like an arm bar or a rear naked choke. Yeah. That groundwork, the guard, all that's jiu-jitsu. Yeah. So I did that for a number of years. I was actually a GTA champion in my weight class, which is 170 and under. And uh, I was basically undefeated for about five years when I competed until I – Injured my knee pretty bad. And do you but. watch it now? You have seen said, man, I could earn that big bucks if I. You know what? It's funny. <laughs> I, it's actually really good fun. At one point when I was in law school, I was offered to fight professionally. No way. And I was thinking, but I had trained with a lot of guys, so yeah. I was a training partner with guys that competed professionally. Okay. And I would like beat a lot of the guys that competed. <laughs> and so they're like, listen, you're beating us. You should be the one competing. And yeah. I thought, no, I'm. You know, I got school and whatnot. I can't dedicate myself. So sometimes I look back and reminisce and kind of regret that. In another world, I could have I could have competed, and I don't know how far I would have went. Yeah, but it's always something that you're curious to know. Like, you know, maybe I would have been a big time competitor. Maybe I would have been a champion. Who knows? Do you still train in practice? So I I've been trying to keep up with it. Yeah, uh, my knee's been a bit dodgy ever since I injured it. I basically blew it out. I had a full ACL wow. tear, and I had to do reconstruction. And then I started to try to train again a couple years ago, and then I re-injured my knee with a meniscus tear. And so I still have a lingering tear issue. I'm working it out. My goal is at some point I want to go back to training and compete again. And now I'm getting older, so it might be be the point where in jiu-jitsu there's a beautiful thing where they realize people want to compete throughout their lives. So I may not be able to compete in the open division, which I used to compete in, but there's a master's division for kind of older folks. So I'm embarrassed to say maybe I'm going to get to the point. (laughs) By the time I recover, I I might be a master's at that point. But I'm going to compete again, no matter what, whatever it is. Some people, when they retire, they, they play seniors golf. <laughs> yes. You're, you're going to do master's MMA. <laughs> That's it. Master's uh, jiu-jitsu. Submission wrestling. Submission grappling. Yeah. What what was, what was happened between um, being a lawyer yep. and then getting into politics? Sure. So the story is, basically, the Coles Note version is, I was an activist as a, as a student. Okay. So what that what I mean by that is I love protests, demonstrations. Mm-hmm. So anything related to the peace movement. So there was there's a big anti-war war push during the Iraq War. Um, you know, we were a lot of folks were saying we shouldn't go there, mm-hmm. and and I was a part of those movements. There's the student movements around the affordability of tuition fees. So I was involved sure. in those movements. There was uh, a lot of groups talking about poverty reduction, and mm-hmm. I would show up to those type of movements. And uh, immigrant and refugee rights. So basically, I, I liked any sort of social justice. Like I said, fairness was big to me. Mm-hmm. So anytime I saw an unfairness and there was a, a protest or a movement, I would I would get involved. So fast forward to when I became a lawyer or I became a law student, then I would provide legal advice to those same groups that I work with. Okay. And then as a lawyer, I provided pro bono assistance to those same groups. So long story short, those You've groups... You've always been involved. Yeah. So those yeah. groups that cared about human rights yeah. essentially approached me to help out in an issue that came up mm-hmm. and then we felt that our elected officials didn't care about the same human rights issues and so folks said listen we got to get you to run mm-hmm. or we need someone to run to show that we care about these human rights issues and eventually the folks that we were were, were in 
we were talking about this, said, we want you to do it. Yeah. And I said, nah, you know, I'm enjoying my life as a lawyer. I yeah. like to do this human rights stuff on the side. Yeah. But I don't want to be a full-time politician. Yeah. And it took about six months of persuasion. My brother then got involved in persuading me. And uh, a good friend, Amneet Singh, and my brother, Gauratan Singh, eventually my brother guilt tripped me at the end, said, Look, you got to do this. And then I caved to the pressure and I did it. Why NDP? So... I'm not particularly affiliated with any party before. Yeah. Uh, my father's not affiliated. My mother wasn't affiliated with any party. If anything, like most immigrants, my dad was maybe a bit liberal-leaning, had, had donated to liberals before, but wasn't overly sure. partisan that way. And I, I basically had my criteria was what party is the most committed to human rights, has the best track record on that, one. And two, uh, one of the things I got to give credit to my dad, I also give credit to the, my spiritual tradition on this. Sure. The idea was, my dad always said to me, listen, when it comes to politics or you know, who needs help, you have to help those who don't have resources or, or, or not being helped. He's like, you know, me, for example, he's telling me, he's like, son, me, I'm doing quite well. I'm, I'm a physician. I earn a good salary. Uh, I have a good practice. I really don't need much help. But look at all these other folks that are in a tighter situation who are struggling with affording you know, tuition and cost of living and all these things. They need help, and we need people that are going to help them out. And, and that kind of informed me. And like I said before, as a spiritual tradition, we believe in this revolutionary concept where we need to take ensure that the people have power and not just elites. And that was a big tradition amongst mm -hmm. Sikhs and amongst Sikhi. So that motivated me, and I thought, okay, what party is the most committed to helping out everyday people and, and most committed to human rights? And it was, for me, the NDP. So you, you didn't look at, it sounds like to me, you didn't look at, you know, which party should I join that's going to give me the best opportunity to to sort of be in power there was never a thought it was like which one can I join that you know believes like I believe and that I can make the biggest impact I mean absolutely if yeah. we talk about what party would be in power where I ran the NDP had never won in the history of Canada yeah ever yeah let alone in the riding they hadn't won in the entire Peel region which involves three which includes three major cities Caledon Brampton and Mississauga, so over close to 2 million people in terms of population that had never voted any level of government and yeah. NDP in. So, yeah, absolutely. It wasn't a decision of where I would get in in terms of yeah. power because I would have never – the the thinking would be that you would never win as an NDP. So if yeah. I wanted power, well, I would never chose that, choose yeah. that party. So, yeah, I definitely chose a party that most aligned with my beliefs. And if you won, you won. You're committed. And if you didn't, you still got your – law practice yeah so and you still do your sort of your pro bono and your, your work on the site absolutely and initially our goal of running wasn't necessarily to win but to make uh, a particular member lose because he had not supported a human rights issue that we cared about mm. and so because of that our goal was just to make him lose and then while we were running the campaign yeah it kind of got to the point where we're like you know what we can actually win this and i thought listen let's go for it and then my first campaign i came within about 500 votes of winning and so you and ran federally first. That's first right. First I ran federally. Yeah. And if you look at the the numbers, like we we probably only received in Brownlee Gormalton, that's where I ran, about a high water mark of about six thousand votes. Six, maybe seven thousand. That was the most we ever received. Mm -hmm. And to win, you needed to get in the range of like nineteen thousand, twenty thousand. So that meant like tripling our yeah. vote count. And that's what we did. Wow. Thirty days from when I was first nominated as the as the candidate. Mm-hmm. And from when the election actually happened to when the election happened, it was about 30 days. And we took our support from that 6,000 and tripled it. To, we got about 20,000 votes That's or 19,000, like 500. And so, so, you, so you, you lose that, but then you join uh, provincially. That's right. 
So after that, there was a lot of momentum. People really excited. No one thought we had a shot. And they saw the results and we were so close. It was less than one percentage point between between us and the and the winning party yeah which was the conservative in that case yeah and people were like listen we we didn't think you had a shot we would have voted for you but we didn't oh, know <laughs> and i got so many calls i was inundated inundated with calls yeah and so as a team we kind of sat together and said listen what's next mm-hmm. and some folks were like listen let's wait till next federal election and some folks thought maybe we should go now and i, I sat down and i thought about it and i thought listen in four years, who knows what I'm going to do? Maybe I, I'm too deep into my law practice. If people want me to do this, if it's something that we want to do, now's the time. People want uh, mm. me to continue pushing forward. A lot of issues had come up that were provincial anyways okay. in the federal race. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, listen, let's do it. And then a couple months later, the provincial elections were, were, were due. Yeah. And I put my turban into the race, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> put my hat into the race and my turban into the race and, and went for it. Nice. And we won. Nice, nice. Um, I've got some listener questions here. Sure. Um, so I'm just going to ask them in, yeah. in, in order here. Um, so Leanne. I didn't know this was live. It's not live. Oh, okay. Well, it's live to tape. Okay. But I got these questions before. Oh, cool, cool, yeah. cool. Um, I'm like, where are these listeners coming from? Oh, they're all <laughs> over the place. I'm telling you. <laughs> so Leanne. Yeah. Um, her question is, what is one policy in particular that you would like to see come into effect Um in the next five years, federally, provincially? One policy. Yeah. Okay. Well, a specific thing that really offends me, I'm really uh, offended at, and the finance minister and the and the prime minister actually weighed in on this issue. Okay. They were speaking to a group of young, you know, labor activists, people in the labor movement, and they said, listen, young people, you have to realize that the future is going to be based on precarious employment. It's a reality. You're not going to have a full-time permanent job anymore. You're going to have a bunch of small, part-time, piecemeal jobs that you string together to create a living. That's the reality. You have to learn to live with it. Mm-hmm. And at, at that meeting, the young people in the room, turned, many of them turned their back on the prime minister, and he got upset by that. But I agree with them. They were upset because... Sure, there might be some people that think that precarious employment is fine. Maybe some corporations or some large employers think it's beneficial to have an, a workforce that's employed in a way that's insecure or unsecure. Mm-hmm. Uh, with insecure employment, maybe they think it's a good thing. But the government shouldn't be endorsing it. The government should say, hey, we're going to do whatever we can to protect you so that you're not forced to work in these unstable positions, in mm-hmm. these insecure employments, and or work with this insecurity. And, and that's something that I'm really uh, passionate about. In my writing, temporary job agencies are the only way people can get a job. So that means you go through this agency, and let's give an example where a company might be hiring someone at $20 an hour. You know, you could live off of that wage. Sure. But the agency claws back close to half of your salary, so you're left with a minimum wage salary of about $11. To me, that's just offensive. Mm-hmm. That doesn't make any sense. And if the employer likes the employee and says, hey, I want to hire you permanently, they have to actually pay a penalty to the to the temporary job agency. Mm-hmm. So there's creating this like barrier for a person to get a full-time permanent job. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to see a policy where a worker that works any job should be paid the exact same amount as mm-hmm. their fellow worker, whether they're working through an agency or not. You know, I understand that agencies might help people find the job, but the agency should not claw back any percentage of their 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 fee or their their wage mm-hmm. their salary 
and instead the employer can be charged a premium Mm-hmm. Because you know they're providing a service, this agency is giving a service. Sure, they can maybe charge a premium, but the agency should never take any of the salary of the worker. So I'd like to see a future where we're protecting people and making it easier to get a full-time job, and at least trying to create the climate where people don't think that precarious employment is the default normal. Mm-hmm. So that's one big policy I'd like to see happen. In general, I mean, it's not a specific policy, but. Uh, income inequality is is the big issue. I mm-hmm. see more and more there's a gap between those who have income and, and resources and those that don't. And there's a lot of study that shows that when you have societies based on this inequality and if that gap is wide, those societies are less happy, less healthy, less secure. There's less civic engagement. So I really want to see a society where we reduce and, and get rid of that gap. So people like um, Kevin O'Leary, Yep. And I'm not speaking for him because I don't mm-hmm. know if this is actually his policy, but it would seem to me that people like him would say that, you know, when you do that, you 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 make the local economy, let's say Ontario, yeah. um, less competitive because we are artificially raising incomes for those who have lower incomes. Um, what, you, what are your thoughts on how, how can this, how can those who... Um, who don't earn as much through no fault of their own. And so whether that's income inequality, you know, between men and women um, or income inequality based on where you live, um, it, it, are there ways to bridge that gap um, that enables still a society to be competitive? Because we are living in a global, global world there, right? Like you can compete all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, sure. I think we absolutely can build a society that's that's competitive, that's successful, that people earn a decent wage. I think actually you'll have a better society when you have that. And I think the evidence shows that countries that have uh, less of an income inequality gap uh, are Japan, uh, Nordic countries like Sweden, Finland, Norway. There's less of that gap. And those countries are more successful. They're competitive. They're mm-hmm. global leaders. And, and Canada actually, in a lot of ways, beats out the states in terms of many of our metrics, mm-hmm. in terms of uh, people's quality of living and quality of life, because we have less of an income inequality gap than the states. The states has, some of the, has one of the worst gaps in terms of those who have resources and those that don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the strategies, how you deal with that, um, increasing the minimum wage to making it a living wage, that's an important strategy. Making it easier to unionize. Unionization is often connected with better wages and more fair wages. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the government can do a lot to make sure that there there's equity, that companies can still make a profit, can still be successful, but have to share their success, share their prosperity with their workers. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important because absent any rules and laws and protections, there is an interest to keep more of the wealth in the company and let and share less of it. And that's the trend. There's the evidence shows that sure. the evidence shows very clearly that wealth is more and more concentrated in less hands. Mm-hmm. And I argue that when you concentrate wealth in less hands, you don't actually encourage more innovation. It doesn't encourage competition. It doesn't make a more dynamic society. In fact, it makes a more stagnant society mm-hmm. when you have less opportunity. So that's, that's kind of my idea on that. Faiza has a question. Faiza's yeah. my sister. Oh, cool. Hi, um, Faiza. She always asks questions. Cool. That's good. <laughs> so one of her questions um, is, I'll just ask it. 
What was the thought process that went behind you dropping your last name, Daliwal? Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, when you started running for office. Very cool. Thank yeah. you for the question. I'm really excited that that came up. So an interesting concept, uh, I, I didn't mention this, but one of the goals of, of Sikhi, of the Sikh philosophy, was there is a system that was very, that's still very prevalent, uh, that was extremely prevalent before and continues to be in mm -hmm. South Asia is the caste system. And the caste system basically means that certain people are are considered higher in status in, in the hierarchy than others based on their birth. Okay. So if you're born, you're born into loosely four categories and those categories denote your value and worth in society. And 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 that's basically forever. You can't change that. You're you're born if you're born a lower ca caste you are forever a lower caste hmm. and there's some people that are so low they're outside of the caste system and they're called the untouchables and an untouchable if that person walked into your home your home could be considered polluted if the shadow oh. of an untouchable touched your food you wouldn't eat your food you'd throw it away and hmm. so in the Sikh tradition we believe that this was so horribly oppressive that one of the goals of the Sikh tradition was to eradicate the caste system to eradicate this injustice and so one of the ways that we did it was the, the, the last guru said that if we want to get rid of this system of injustice, we need to stop using our caste names in our day-to-day -day conversation. You can know your history and where you come from, mm -hmm. but when you speak to someone, you need to refer to them without their caste name. So my last name refers to my caste, and I wanted to send a message that as an elected official, I want to represent all people. And the title Sing for Men and Gore for Women is a is a title of royalty to suggest that all human beings are royal by birth that we're not high mm. or low based on you know what family we're born to we're all high we're all noble we're all dignified just because we're humans and i hope to signal that by being a sing i'm res respecting all people i'm going to defend all people and not just my clan and and it's something i think is such a cool and powerful idea i thought that it would be something unique. No one's ever done it before. It's very common in South Asia for people to not use their clan name and to run an election based on Singh or God. But it hadn't been done in, in outside of South Asia. So I'm the first person to be elected mm -hmm. not using my caste name, not using a caste name. Interesting. And and for me, that was a great honor. Yeah. And I had a great message and a good story behind it as yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Good question, Faiza. <laughs> <laughs> um there must have been a learning curve for you. You know, I, I know you, you, you practice law, so you, you've sort of had experience, um, you know, in, in, in debate. You had experience in prep. You, you've had experience, in, you know, uh, you as a defense lawyer working against the crown, that sort of stuff. Um, I, I'm curious of, of, of a number of things. You know, was there anything that sort of as you started your, your life in politics that really opened your eyes in terms of, wow, this is the way things work, or I didn't know it was going to be like this. I'm, I'm curious about some of these these sure. early lessons that, that you learned. Sure. Well, I'll tell you one really random early lesson. Yeah. So I had a lot of experience with public speaking. I wasn't really nervous about that because I do that on a regular basis. I had experience with law, so procedure and knowing what the pro appropriate procedure is in, in the legislative assembly was also something that I was very comfortable learning because we have a lot of rules of procedure when it comes to court cases and okay. so that's something so i get up to do my first speech in in parliament and i'm speaking and people are yelling at me 
from the other side. Yeah. And I all of a sudden I stop. I'm really confused. Why are they yelling at me? But my colleague just said, no, no, go on, go on, continue with your speech. And I said, but they're yelling at me. What's going on? <laughs> they go, that's normal. It's called heckling. <laughs> and I'm like, what? How is this normal? <laughs> so, I mean, from a lo- lawyer tradition yeah. or from a legal tradition, I might have a completely different position or opinion than the prosecutor. Yeah. You know, my, the prosecutor wants to say that my client is guilty. And that means they're going to go to jail. That's a serious, you know, impact on their life. And I'm saying, no, my client is innocent. So we're polar opposites. Yeah. And things get very heated and and there's passion. And I might argue passionately because I don't want my client to be wrongfully convicted and then spend time in jail, have his liberty stripped away from him. So there's passion. I'm excited. I'm going to speak with a lot of vigor. But when I speak, the prosecution will listen. They're not going to interrupt me. It's unheard of. No, there's no way that they would chirp me or or speak over me while I'm speaking. That's hilarious. And similarly, when the prosecution's speaking, I would listen to them. Yeah. But to be in a scenario where I'm speaking and someone else is yelling at me, it just blew my mind. I thought, what is this? I, I don't like personally heckling and I never do it myself. But that was an early lesson that <laughs> you're going to get yelled at while you're speaking and to not pay wow. attention to it. Wow. I'm curious. I, this sort of dropped into my mind as, as you were talking about being in court and stuff. Um, and and I know you're, you're you know, w- before we started, you did a little Snapchat there. So I know you've got interest in pop culture. Yep. I'm curious uh, your thoughts on these things like um, the Serial Podcast and the Undisclosed Podcast. I don't know if these are familiar to you. Um, or the, that Netflix special that was maybe a year or two ago, uh, Making a Murderer. Um, any of this familiar to you? Yes, yes absolutely. Awesome. Yes. Um, your thoughts on, 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 on I, I guess, Making a Murderer? Yeah, well, in general, there's a lot of, there's a lot of new ways of consuming content. Yeah. There's a lot of new ways of how people can tell their story and how others can hear those stories. Mm-hmm. And, and podcasts in general are a really exciting way for pretty much anyone to start telling a story or to start developing ways of communicating their ideas in, in a way that before it would be impossible. Like how would an average person start getting their message out to people? You'd have to somehow make your way to a radio show and mm-hmm. it gets selected as a host on a show yeah. and start up your own talk show or whatnot. So I think it's phenomenal. These unique ways of, of communicating stories and ideas. I think it's really, really exciting. And, and with Netflix, Netflix has developed a whole new kind of avenue of how they, how they shoot their shows and films and documentaries. And it's just an exciting time to have, all these unique ways of storytelling and idea presentation. Mm-hmm. You in in 2012 March, um, you issued a statement mm-hmm. um, against the government of India, mm-hmm. the, um, and I'll probably butcher this name, but Balwant Balwant Singh. Yep. Rajana. Rajwana. Yeah. Rajwana. Um, tell me about that. What, what what's the story behind that? So, uh, I had raised a number of issues in terms of of human rights violations in, in India. Uh, it's something that was pretty close to home because a lot of South Asians live in, in Canada mm-hmm. and experience a lot of, a lot of trauma or a lot of stress or a lot of difficulties from, from being growing up in or living in India and South Asia in general. And some communities that I noticed had been persecuted there was uh, a Muslim community from Gujarat that experienced a lot of persecution. There's a Christians in Orissa and the Sikh community. And there seemed to be a trend where minority communities in India were often 
mistreated or oppressed. Um, beyond religious minorities, women are often mm-hmm. horribly treated in India, and there's a systemic nature to it. The government employs violence against women as a tool. Uh, there's been a number of human rights organizations complaining about the use of rape, the use of violence against women mm-hmm. by the state of India. There's uh, human. There's Supreme Court cases brought forward. Uh, one very famous lawyer, Colin Gonzalez, is uh, an amazing lawyer, an amazing human rights activist who raises the issue of violence against women, particularly in the northeast of India, in uh, Nagaland and Manipur, and how military are using violence against women as a way to subdue the populations that are upset about their their, their treatment. So, the death penalty is something that's used in India. And my argument is that a democratic nation should not be using the death penalty. America is another country that uses the death penalty. It's not appropriate, I think, in a civilized, uh, democrat, uh, free and democratic society. Mm-hmm. So I criticize the use of the death penalty. I also criticize the treatment of minority communities. And I made a number of statements about mm-hmm. India's track, human rights track record. Yeah, yeah. And then you weren't allowed in the country later that year. Yeah, so <laughs> what happened there? Yeah, well, <laughs> it was yeah. So it's not a funny thing, but it's no, no. Story. I mean, it's it's quite interesting. Well, I mean, on one side, I kind of have to take it as a badge of honor, like I'm that important that a country decided that they don't want me to enter it. I was the only elected official ever in the history of Canada to be denied a visa in to it's India. India. Other people have been denied. There, there is uh, a, fo- a group of people that wrote a documentary outlining some of the violence against a minority community, and they were denied entry. Yeah. There was a Bhopal tragedy, which is a massive uh, gas it's, plant explosion. Yeah, 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 I remember that. Yeah, I think it's 1983 or four. Yeah. And the author of a book that kind of cites government mismanagement as one of the reasons was also denied a visa. Mm-hmm. So many, it's not uncommon for a human rights activist to be denied a visa sure. into India, but it's quite unique that a politician, politician was denied. Yeah. So what's actually particularly unique about what happened was I had actually I'd received a couple of awards up until that point. The Toronto Star did a piece on me as one of the top 12 to watch for 2012. Yeah. And I'd been getting some cool accolades, and I was really honored. But there's a group out of Punjab that was selecting the sick of the year. Yeah. And the previous sick of the year was Sunit Dudley, who started a, a massive um, technology company mm-hmm. that's mission is to provide technology for those who can't afford it. So their goal isn't to compete with an iPad, for example, but they make the cheapest tablet available on the planet because they want to ensure that you know poor rural people living in a village where they can't afford a book can buy one tablet which will have every single book they need on it. Sure. And so it's a way of, it's kind of like a social entrepreneurship where yeah. they're doing entrepreneurship, but their mission is to give technology into the hands of everyday people. And so for discovering that or developing the cheapest tablet and for developing this company, this amazing person won the award. And so the second year of this award, I was selected yeah. as as a recipient for the Sick of the Year Award. And so I was like, through the moon, yeah. to the moon. I was so excited. I was really pumped. And they asked me what date I should, I would like to come to collect the award and to make the award ceremony around this. And I thought, you know what, no matter what happens in Canada, Christmas Day, December 25th, is probably the safest day for me to have an event because there's yeah. no way there's going to be parliament in session. There's no way there's going to be any issues going on. So I said, December 25th, I'll be there for sure. I applied for my visa, and I had received a visa up until that point every year, and I'd been going to Punjab for about seven years in a row or something like that, close to that. And this time I got my visa back, or I got my passport back with no visa. 
And so I set up a meeting with the consular general and I wanted to ask them, listen, what's going on here? What does this mean? And they said, you've been denied an entry. And I met with the consul general and he said to me, the reason you're being denied is because you've criticized India's human rights track record. If you stop criticizing us and you withdraw your comments, we'll let you in again. That's I crazy. Said, That's not going to happen, man. I got to continue to raise these issues. And so I've been... Uh, Indefinitely banned. Did they mail you the award? or? Yeah, so I actually never got the award. Oh, my. I, I sent in a video statement accepting it. Yeah. And and that, got, that was well received, and people were quite upset that I was denied. And the award was sent by hand with someone to Canada to meet, meet up with me, but I actually haven't actually physically received it yet. Oh, wow. So it's something that I would love to receive. So someone has it here. I think so. They just, it's, it's almost like, you know, when you got family members that go away. Yes. And they're bringing back stuff from, from other family members. I just didn't get it and yet, you just though. haven't gone to their house to pick it up. Totally. I got to figure out where it is. That's hilarious. Yeah. Um, well, one of the things that has been talked uh, uh, a bit recently is this whole issue of carding. Yes. And I know you've, you've, you've talked about it. Yeah, absolutely. As, as well. We led the charge on it. Um, talk to me about that. Sure. So... First off, there have been many people that have raised this issue. I was by no means the first. It was raised by a number of other people. I have to give credit to the uh, African Canadian Legal Clinic, okay, the ALCL. The uh, Law Union did a lot of work around this issue, and, and they deserve a lot of credit. Uh, Canadian Civil Liberties Association, they've done a lot of work on it. There's a lot of activists. Actually, uh, Desmond Cole, I have to give him a lot of credit because... He's been on the show. Oh, good. Very yeah. cool. Very cool. He raised the issue in a Toronto Life article that really kind of highlighted the issue. And what I would say is that building on all this momentum from all these folks that really raised this issue, no one had done it politically, though. Mm-hmm. There hadn't been any politician that raised the issue in Parliament or in City Hall. Um up into that point, in, and definitely not in, in Queen's Park. So, sorry, City Hall had talked about the issue, but there seemed to be really no clarity. The mayor had in, initiated or indicated that he was not going to do anything about it, then maybe he would do something about it, and there wasn't really any clear movement. So no one had talked about it at a provincial level. In mm-hmm. City Hall, they had. So what happened was I was actually uh, a victim of carding. I'd, I'd faced Here. it yeah, a number of times. Wow. So I had been stopped, and I shared my story on CBC. I made a statement about it in Parliament saying that I had been stopped a number of times, but I was stopped as a law student, so I knew yep. my rights. But imagine what it would be like for someone who wasn't a, a law student, someone who didn't have resources, didn't know about what their rights were and how difficult that scenario would be and how, how scary it would be if mm-hmm. you're someone, you know, a racialized young man being stopped for no reason. So what it is is, in a nutshell, carding is basically when police stop someone who's not under specific investigation. They're not under investigation for committing a criminal offense. They're not being charged with an offense. They're simply stopped because the police think they look suspicious. And they're stopped and they're asked a lot of questions. What's your name? Where are you going? Where are you coming from? What do you do for a living? Where's your house? Who are your friends? Who do you hang out with? A lot of personal information. And that information, what happens is, say if you're in a bad mood and you know maybe you don't want to answer a question, or say the police just misunderstand your response and say, you know what, person was belligerent. Mm-hmm. That forms a record. And people were finding that they'd apply for a job and they'd have no criminal record, but in their criminal record search, these carding incidents would come up and people were being denied opportunities for employment, for volunteering, for university applications based on 
these incidents, which were not even criminal in nature. It's not like they were actually convicted convicted of any offense. So, and not only that, but just the the fact that you're being stopped in your own community for no reason makes you feel like you don't belong. Mm -hmm. And so I raised the issue in Parliament saying, listen, we need to do something about this. We need a provincial strategy. There was no strategy that came forward. And so then I put forward a bill saying, or a motion saying that Ontario needs to come out and, and condemn this practice and say that carding has no place where it's discriminatory, uh, based on race. It has no place in our province. And that motion, when it was presented, uh, the minister responsible for this issue basically came out and, and stated that we will work towards ending carding. Mm -hmm. So that motion directly got the, the government to respond, and the motion passed unanimously. And we had a statement saying that the province of Ontario states very clearly that discriminatory race-based carding has no place in our province and it needs to end nice yeah so it's pretty cool would that be one of your proudest moments in the legislature absolutely yeah. it was one of my moments where i felt like we we were able to to do something positive we mm -hmm. were able to push forward an issue and on this one specifically we were able to push the government to do something so we yeah. started with a statement yeah i just made a statement we have a private member statements and we're allowed to do those every so often. Mm -hmm. And I raised the issue, and the government responded saying, okay, we'll look into it. We'll do a, we'll do a study. Yeah. So they started conducting a study. And the study came out with an answer where they didn't really condemn carding, though. So it's kind of like they did this consultation and it didn't go anywhere. People yeah. were upset. And so I said, you know what? We need to make it clearer. This, well, I said we needed a provincial strategy. The province did a consultation. But they haven't really said anything about carding. So I wanted it to be clear. I wanted the, the province to come forward and say, hey, do we support this or not? I wanted the province to say we don't support this to send a message to, you know, police chiefs that listen, they need to work on eradicating this practice. We got that uh, that movement, and mm -hmm. I was really honored by that. And then nice. we got the government to now, as of this January, actually, they implemented a policy that should at least reduce carding, if not eliminate it. And we're hoping that it's going to eliminate it, and we're going to make sure people are, are aware of that. And so, if any of your listeners know anyone who's being stopped by the police or has been stopped by the police in this in the recent months after january uh, make sure they contact their local politician contact me if they want and mm -hmm. we want to keep track whether or not it's actually stopping i want to talk to you for hours <laughs> i think i think we could i've got like three pages of oh, like man. points here and amazing stuff. amazing um but thank you so much for coming in. It's been an honor. And I'm going to reach out again when you announce, you formally announce your candidacy <laughs> for for leadership of the uh, of, of the federal NDP party and whether that is in, in the near future or, in, or, 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 or years from now. Um, I, I hope that uh, that you'll come back. I would love to come back. This is fun. You're yeah. good at what you do. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming. My pleasure.